Welcome to episode 8 of Freedom Soul Here. We have our third guest on, or public of morality, or Thomas, on, to be talking about some uh, cultural and political uh, things that he's been uh, centering his page on. He runs an Instagram page by the name of Republic of Morality. Uh, welcome on, sir. I'm glad to be here. It's uh, good to finally make a proper acquaintance with you two. And uh, yeah, as you said, I run a page. It's a page uh, that mainly promotes uh, traditionalist conservatism. And uh, any sort of um, knowledge that comes more from the past than it does from the present and how I'm trying to showcase how it connects to the present and why it's important to maintain and teach that knowledge. Yeah, so how would you define uh, traditionalism or traditional conservatism? How would you define that? Uh, traditionalism in and of itself is uh, effectively, it's not a unified phenomenon sort of globally. It's, um, there, are, there are communities in the world uh, these are different cultures with their own customs, with their own uh, uh, that live in specific regions, and they have their own customs. They have their own religion. They have their own uh, ethnic background and heritage, and they have their own uh, local laws or uh, uh, traditions that they maintain over the centuries and over the even the millennia for some uh, groups. Uh, these groups now today we know them a lot of them as uh, modern nationalities for example the French are one group the English are another the Scots are another Norwegians uh, Greeks Italians you know all of these uh, groups anyways they have their own ways of doing things or they used to have anyways and the their own unique styles of doing things has been completely upended ever since uh, the advancement of political liberalism and the, um, the French Revolution and the industrialization. And we've all just kind of become the sort of semi-liberal capitalist countries. Now we still have some vestiges of traditions. You have a lot of like folk songs and you know folk dances. These are the best examples I can give you know when you're trying to picture what the traditions look like. These are the outward expressions of the traditions. Um, and uh, you have their own, they have their own language with their own unique way of uh, understanding the world, a religion and a culture with a unique uh, worldview. And these things, uh, what I'm trying to promote is the, that these things are worth preserving and that we should in fact retain them and strengthen them like we used to. That we should return to a sort of more traditional understanding of how things are done. That's what traditionalism is in practice. Now, as to a set of beliefs, there is no yeah. like unified codex or you know text that says all oh, traditionalists have this stance on this issue or whatever. We don't have political parties. We don't have party platforms, of course. It's very rare nowadays yeah. for there to be a genuinely traditionalist force. Yeah. Right. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the main things is that tradition is valuable one of the main things that you would say is tradition is valuable uh at least to some extent disconnected from the value of the things that are traditions so even if something is a tradition even if something that is a tradition isn't necessarily good in and of itself or you know maybe it's worthless in and of itself it's good because it's a tradition 
would not uh, fall into some tribalism of uh, you know defending everything uh, because it is traditional. Uh, traditions over the centuries, even before these uh, things that I mentioned, you know, they evolve, they change. Some traditions will be abandoned, but we have not done that uh, now. What has happened to a lot of countries and happened in my country, it's not so easily visible in the United States because there was no like uh, actual tradition very much in the United States. Uh, you know, it's it was uh, formed uh, any United States uh, tradition was formed within the 20th century and solidified. And because it was formed so late and it, it was effectively appended so early in its existence, it barely even makes a dent to the sort of cultural conscience. But, you know, in places like uh, mm -hmm. Greece, where I live, or in Italy or in France, all of these very vibrant traditions, they were ripped apart either because they were, uh, were suboptimal for the operation of capitalism or uh, because liberalism considered them to be uh, political rivals and considered them to be uh, unworthy of existing in an age of enlightenment and reason. Uh, the, um, the best example I can provide is uh, really the French monarchy was not a, a so, sort of singular entity like we see today. They, there were multiple regions, all of these regions have the, their own like uh, local customs and they're all, they have their own languages and um, they had their, uh, their own agreement with the crown about what their obligations were with the crown. It's, you know, the cities had, uh, had agreed upon certain obligations and rights, the, uh, the regions you know, themselves had agreed upon those, uh, different villages had agreed these things. And that was the sort of the legal apparatus of the French kingdom as it had evolved over the centuries. And that was very organic, you know, it was people saying that, you know, we want to adopt this, we want to abandon that, we want to go forward uh, with uh, this, whatever that was, whatever the tradition was. And uh, all of these things kind of connected and evolved in an organic way. Liberalism came and said that, no, you know, these local traditions, they go against, uh, you know, liberalism and nationalism to a degree. They go against our um, idea of how things should be run, so we're going to eradicate them. And you have a France, the France that we have now, where these uh, minority languages and regions and cultures that existed don't exist anymore. Uh, French culture has been uprooted, and the only celebrations being done now are celebrations towards the Republic as a republic. Very few of them are actually related to the religion or the culture of the French people going back to the time of the Franks in the 1600s, in the 600s, my mistake. I mean, uh, I know I'm making a lot of points that are very wide, so I hope uh, it's all understandable, but you know, tell me, do you think that's a good No, answer? that's great. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think one thing that is interesting about uh, liberalism, right, which um, if you listen to uh, the Anacreon episode, it was our last episode, uh, we talked about this, we're not talking about liberalism in the sense of, you know, American political liberalism, we're talking about it in the sense of, you know, more uh, enlightenment liberalism, classical liberalism, and I think one of the interesting things that occurs in liberalism is, well, you know, theoretically liberalism it should be something where you allow for a lot of ideas, where you, you know, traditionalism could even be an idea that is allowed for by liberalism, but some, you know, some, maybe even more often than not, 
uh, what has happened within liberalism has been actually you, you know, people have been closed off to other ideas such as traditionalism. Um, and I don't know if uh, Matthew or Thomas have something to build on that, but I think that, you know, there is something to be, um, that is something to watch out for becoming kind of uh, clo closed off to other ideas because that's, you know, in a sense, that's kind of antithetical to the idea of liberalism, but it really does often occur. Yeah, um, I cannot uh, stop uh, recommending this book because um, I'm, I've only read about uh, halfway through or a little less than halfway through. But uh, Patrick J. Denin's uh, Why Liberalism Failed is uh, one of the best books at highlighting the problems of liberalism. And it highlights exactly what you just said, Samuel. It shows um, that uh, liberalism creates a sort of anti-culture, which is, uh, exists only to evaporate any, any idea or of any cultural idea or norm which goes against the advancement of liberalism. And in this manner, it kind of homogenizes the, the countries where liberalism takes over and the world at large. Now, that's where, what we're seeing with globalization. And that's why you have all these uh, right-wing populist movements rising up, you know, with massive popular support. You know, not massive, but, you know, great popular support, very significant popular support against it. Because they're, they're seeing a very visceral and very, you know, up-close uh, destruction of the, the culture that they kind of took for granted. Even the little bits of culture that have survived all the way to now and have not sort of, and are still sort of gradually eroding. And, you know, that's where the big pushback comes from, effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, of course, if you have been listening to our show for a while, or, you know, or even if not, maybe you know, you maybe know that we are, uh, Matthew and I are kind of a politically libertarian, which is, uh, you know, a liberal, a liberal movement, but at the same time, um, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, I think we, we dislike, we like the political side of it, and I don't want to speak too much for Matthew, um, but I'll speak for myself saying I, I like the political side of it, I like, you know, the rights and everything, but I think that there needs to be some way to preserve cultural, culture within that. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how that might be possible, um, uh, regardless of whether that is, you know, uh, Thomas might even prefer an abandonment of liberalism in the first place, uh, whereas we might prefer a, a little bit of an integration. But I think uh, probably Thomas has some ideas uh, as to how traditionalism could be integrated into modern society. I think uh, I would make the point politics is uh downstream from culture and indeed i i will critique um kind of uh, libertarianism a little bit that uh at its worst it kind of rushes to the it rushes kind of downstream before fixing the upstream like you know mm -hmm. liberal policy or right liberal policy is all well and good but if you don't have a a good culture, um, you know, people, would, would, I've kind of said this before, at least on another one on the episode, you know, there's still going to be problems, you know, fix the culture and the, the policy will kind of follow. And then I, I would also say uh, 
the concept of like cultural capital or social capital um, it seems like the more uh, liberal a culture is the easier it is to deplete that stored up uh, values and uh, yeah so it seems like kind of the more uh, community focused a culture is which is not necessarily liberal at all seems like you uh, cultures kind of build up their social capital more that way but it is a really easy kind of hole to fall in with being like just a super like individualist and you know no one can tell me what to do at all when in a lot of ways that's true but it's not you know there are things that are wrong that that are maybe it's not right for someone to step in but they're still wrong even if all parties you know kind of consent to it it kind of seems like a mm-hmm. kind of like a bit of like a short circuit if you will kind of you know skipping the, the foundation a little bit yeah i agree with all that uh, i can agree yes yeah i i can agree uh, certainly with both of you in a way and i'd like to tell you here that uh, i used to be a classical liberal until I was about uh, 19, pretty much. So it's not that long ago. I still remember what I thought in, in that period and why I was uh, in that idea. And the one thing that I could never answer when I was a classical liberal is what will stop soci- the society? Say I create the great classical liberal society that I like. What, what, uh, how could I stop it from rolling right back down the hill and ending up in the sort of the, the progressive hellscape that we live in today. And I could never properly and convincingly answer that question first to myself and secondly to other people. And I came to the conclusion that it's because, you know, since liberalism, since progressivism is effectively the um, logical extreme of um, liberal preconceptions and presuppositions about how the world works or how it should work, it's kind of impossible for it to end up any other way. It's, it's either going to end up uh, in the progressivism we know or into something very similar to it. And um, for uh, libertarians, I have a, a post on my account called uh, The Relationship Between Tradition and Liberty. And uh, I, th- I think that will make a persuasive case for you to, if you'd like to check it out, uh, after the, uh, the episode, of course. I may have read that one, Effectively, um, the idea behind... Hmm? You've seen that one? You've read it? I think I did. What did you think? I think that might have been one of the posts I've read on your account. I can't remember 100%, but I think I, I think I, I can't say I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that I agree with all of it, but, and I'd have to go back because I think it was like a long time ago that I read it, at least like a month ago, uh, but I think there is definitely something to it. And I think as you were saying, uh, as you're saying about uh, how do you stop progressive or live, uh, kind of like a classic liberal society from uh, from kind of rolling away, and I think that's one of the that is one of that's always been one of my biggest issues. Because um, in a in a philosophical sense, I really like classical liberalism. In a pla- in a practical sense, I think it is it is difficult because the whole the whole point of it is that it's not authoritarian that it's kind of voluntary um in the question of how do you 
not force people into keeping society as it is, but still have it stay as it is, is really difficult. Um, but I think this is also the thing of, okay, how, if you're in any other sort of government, how do you still, how do you keep it from not becoming too authoritarian? Um, but I think that uh, you may have actually made some, and you may be about to talk about this uh, with relation to your post about, uh, <laughs> I forget the name actually at the moment, but... A tradition and liberty, yeah, I'm gonna, I'd like to say a few words exactly. about it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, the basis of that post, and I really want to get this through, is that uh, when you look at monarchist movements in, uh, in Europe, and in Europe the main uh, expression of traditionalism between the years of uh, 1800 and uh, the 1930s, effectively, when uh, it was really the, the last hurrah of the traditionalists. You know, after that point, it, it's just all downhill from there. And I mean, they, they have been in a, in a slow but steady decline for uh, that entire uh, century, pretty much. Um, effectively, when you look at these movements, they all wanted the restoration of old rights. So what were these old rights? Well, as, you, as I mentioned before, each region, uh, community and city had its own sort of relationship with the king. And uh, a lot of these sort of modern uh, mass state uh, developments we see today are only possible because there is this supposedly magical will of the people behind the current governments. Uh, I read uh, a quote from a book a couple of days ago. I don't remember the book, but um, I remember the quote. You know, King Louis the, uh, the 17th, the, the guy who got his uh, head chopped off by the French Revolution, he couldn't arbitrarily raise, uh, conscript all the able-bodied men between the ages of 20 and 45, for example, in his country. He couldn't do that. That would cause a, a gigantic uproar. Uh, there was no legal basis for it. It was just an unthinkable thing to do. With democracies, that's not just possible. It's the order of the day. And in the same way, these communities that had a special relationship with the king, where it was agreed that, you know, you pay this much tax and, you know, you have this many obligations and you get this many rights, that those agreements weren't just, you know, things that could be tweaked around like modern laws. They were uh, very, very bounding uh, contracts. They were very sort of minimalistic in their structure and they, they could not be changed at a whim. And the monarch could not impose them, they had to be agreed, otherwise the, the city or the region or the local aristocrat would be, uh, you, know, uh, you know, they'd uh, be in revolt. And uh, if you look at old tax rates and you compare them to now, and you effectively see modern democracies just tweaking tax rates at a whim, just because some progressive got in power, for example. And you look at older societies and you see that everybody had like a 25% tax rate for like uh, a thousand years, pretty much. And, you know, obviously there were differences in technology and uh, advancements in other things, but uh, a sort of um, a legal apparatus that's formed in a traditionalistic manner, and this is not just um, a matter of the monarchy. There are other, older theories about republics as well that uh, would uh, work differently than liberalism, the supposedly sort of illiberal republics. I don't like using that word, but yeah. Um, when you look at these sort of traditional perhaps. structure. <laughs> yeah, sort of a, sure a, a libertarian kind of thing. Yeah. 
um, when you look at these societies and the way they, they operated, you, you notice that a lot of these agreements are bounding and they're bounding for centuries. And there's little way to, there's little um, room to change them. You can tweak them a bit, you know, maybe you won't pay 20% tax rate, you'll pay a 21% tax rate. And in times of war, you know, you had the sort of the war levies where, you know, you were required to go to war or you were required to pay a 25% tax instead of a 20% tax. But, you know, these changes compared to now are just laughable. You know, and you look at old, uh, you know, taxes and you look at people revolting over like a 13% tax rate and you just kind of envy them with the way they, you know, with the way we live now. And you know, supposedly yeah. that's the price we pay for, uh, you know, liberal democracy and rights and everything else. But we're seeing now that this liberal democracy is unsustainable. It, it relies on the plundering of the planet. It relies on uh, a sort of uh, 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 indirect authoritarianism and a sort of uh, electoral management that, that's almost uh, Stalinist in a way, you know, sort of very, very Soviet-like but it's so hidden, you don't really see it. And it's just uh, a lot of these issues are starting to show and the cracks are starting to appear. And that's uh, kind of where I'm trying to go in there and say, look, there's the matrix. You're in the matrix. You know, uh, if you want to break out of it, you know, you have to think in a different way. You have to, you know, open your horizon to a system beyond liberalism, something post-liberal. Mm -hmm. I hope I didn't meander very much there. I didn't just head over to, I don't know, random tangents, but yeah. No, that was actually really good. And I think actually there's some, there's some serious common ground between, um, between us and you here. Um, I know Matthew and I, in, I, probably on the show to an extent, and even just in our you know, personal discussions, we've talked about, you know, there could be a lot of advantages to, or, you know, just kind of the lower level that government occurs that could be nicer. So whether, you know, if there are, you know, individual towns, say, have a lot more, you know, authority over themselves, uh, kind of similar to how you're discussing how, you know, individual towns had agreements with these monarchs. Um, and I think that, you know, you could have a lot better, you know, representation of what the, <coughs> excuse me, of what the people in those areas, you know, truly wanted. And that might be, uh, a much more stable, sustainable, and uh, simultaneously, actually, um, you know, more agreeable to the inhabitants' uh, way of uh, managing it. And uh, you know, even another benefit would be, uh, it would be much easier to go to a place where you were, you know, happier if, you know, if your town was really like something that you just could not stand being in, you could go to another place that was, you know, more agreeable to you. I'm not sure you know, how, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that might not be exactly what you were saying, but I think no, there that's, is uh, at least some similarity. Uh, that's perfect. No, that's, uh, I think that's a very perfect uh, way of putting it across. Um, effectively, because the, the sort of the, the organization of the community was done from the ground up in the way that, you know, you had the, the local matters that were dealt with by the local people. You had the, uh, the sort of the regional matters and the state matters that were dealt by the region, state, the, the governor general of the king or whatever. You had the matters of the city being handled by the elected assemblymen of the, of the city, because, you know, I have to mention that as well. We think of representative institutions as like a creation of uh, liberalism. No, representative institutions existed 
in the in medieval cities and Renaissance cities, in even the most absolutist of monarchies. They they existed because you know they these monarchs understood the the obvious that you know these people you know you had these notables in the cities they wanted to have political voice and it's only natural to allow the sort of the people of that place to decide things for that place. It's only now that we think and you have all these progressives thinking that you know oh we'll take the the White House and we'll enact change from the White House to be imposed uh, top-down to the states. It's only now that that's possible. Mm-hmm. And if I have to give a, a sort of a piece of advice to um, Americans, you know, because I, you know, I hear a bunch of people, there are a few people on Instagram who are a bit cringy, and they'll say things like, oh, we need a monarchy in the United States. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think that's a, a laughable idea. And um, when we get down to it, what can be done is for people to retreat into communities with uh, others who are like-minded to them. So I'd argue Republicans to go to Republican states and solidify Republican control in those states. And then I want to uh, change from the ground up, you know, decide local laws, the laws of the sort of community and county you live in. And then, you know, decide the laws of the, uh, of the entire state, the state you live in. And when you look at, uh, I mean, I, I check the news from the United States every once in a while. And I see all these regions, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, what was it recently? I don't know, uh, Mississippi passing like a a more restrictive abortion law or something, something like that. I mean, the residents there, if you go and ask them, you'll see like a 60% almost approval for the bill. Because the people there are culturally conservative. They want this sort of conservative change, and that's what they want to enact. And you see all these uh, sort of liberal seething about how, oh, oh my God, what's happening there? They're trying to take uh, our abortion away from us and everything else. And really, that's uh, what I advocate for. You know, I want these communities to be self-governed. I want the people in this community to be able to um, vote for the change they desire and for that change to stick. And I think the United States is very fertile ground for that because you still have states' rights. I think that's mm-hmm. very important. Yeah, I mean, I think the... the... The beautiful thing in the United States that could really facilitate this is the federal system we have. We have, you know, we have the federal government, but we also have the, you know, what a, if you don't know what the definition of a federal system is, it's a system where you have different know. levels of government. Well, I'm not referring to you, but just if anybody. Ah, the, the audience, yeah. <laughs> My mistake. Yeah. yeah. No, I apologize. Uh, but then you have, you know, you have the government, the, what, what we call the federal government which is really the national government. But then you also have state governments and then local governments, which is, you know, city governments or, you know, county governments, a, a count, you know, county, um, if you're not from the United States, you don't have counties in your country. It's just, you know, a grouping of towns, essentially. And, you know, so I think that that is really, there is opportunity there to maybe implement uh shift a lot of the power down to states and down, you know, down to counties and cities. And I think that would be, I've, I've always really personally thought that that would be a really great way to, to, to run the country. Yeah. It's an interesting yeah. like idea to kind of delegate power away from the most central things kind of with the, with the increased kind of spiritualization of politics. It's kind of like, it's almost like it would be morally wrong by that way of thinking to like you know everything is just like almost has absolute morality attached to it mm-hmm. 
where it's like, why would you want to, you know, kind of decentralize power down to the states when, because, you know, the situation that pops into your head is, well, they're just going to do it wrong way, and then there'll be, like, absolute, like, atrocities happening. You know, I think it's, it's really just not a bad thing to just say, let's get, like, all 50 states kind of be their own kind of little petri dish, and we'll see what works and see, you know, and, you know, some states could look to others and copy them if it works, stuff like that. I think you hit the nail on the head, Matthew. I, I think, um, effectively, it's uh, the problem with sort of liberal universalism. Uh, liberalism imagines itself as a, a universally applicable form of thought. And uh, again, I have to shout out uh, Patrick J. Deneen because he, he wrote a truly fantastic book with why liberalism failed. Um, it, um, uh, liberalism, sort of uh, a lot of its assumptions about human nature end up being true merely because liberalism is in power. Like a lot of the, the presuppositions that liberalism has about humanity, that we're all just detached autonomous individuals, for example, that only happens when liberals are in power. When liberals are not in power, when you look at any pre-liberal system, you don't see detached individuals, you see communities. You see people with deep roots and ties to their culture, to their religion, to their soil, and to, th to their families, to their extended families, and to the culture they live in. And that has been shattered because of liberalism, not, uh, not because liberalism is correct in assuming that that thing never existed. By, by thinking it does not exist, liberalism has created a, a state of affairs where effectively it has dissolved these ties. That's, uh, that's what I'd say, and that's the universalism of liberalism, and progressives work under the same universalism, because progressivism is a liberal ideology, of course. Um, as for communities, you know, from the ground up, uh, I like bringing up this example because it's, uh, it's a very potent example, I'd say. There, there's this, uh, there was, rather, this particular strain of political thought in Spain. They were called the Carlists. The Carlists were very uh, ultra-conservative monarchists, effectively. They were traditionalist monarchists. And uh, they were particularly concentrated in the northern part of the country, where uh, Navarra is. There's a, a region called Navarra in Spain. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they were concentrated in that region. And their main political ideology, one of their elements, was localism. It was the idea that the Spanish government has gotten too centralized, that it, it should cede power back to the communities. And you see this sort of localistic sentiment in all, monarch, in all uh, monarchist uh, movements uh, in Europe, pretty much, except for maybe, I don't know, Germany or something. But uh, Germans are weird. France, yeah, <laughs> no offense German, to German listeners, very, but... In common parlance, they're very uh, authoritarian, so to speak. They're very orderly. They yeah. they believe in central power and in uh, using that central power. But uh, when you look at the other movements, and you, you see this perfectly at uh, the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is the example of what all of these monarchies would uh, probably have looked like roughly if they were alive today. Uh, and the United Kingdom is a bad example as well in a lot of ways because it's also the birthplace of liberalism and it's the place where liberal ideas have been very 
more thoroughly entrenched, although the United States is kind of snatching that crown now, as of late. Um, but the United Kingdom has, um, it had communities. It had communities, it uh, had an emphasis on the communities. Its political system is considered antiquated by modern people, but really it just doesn't work well with the presuppositions of today. It used to work, it doesn't work now because we've changed our fundamental ideas about, it, about things. But, um, you know, it used to be community heavy, it used to be very uh, community based, and now it's effectively just a, some sort of progressive nanny state. It's a, it's a tragic downfall and it's a very recent downfall as well. Because throughout the 20th century, I'd say the shining beacon of sort of a constitutional monarchism would have been the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. I hope I was clear in that, I don't know. Definitely, and I think one thing I've noticed that is probably something that, you know, is it could even come as a surprise. Um, honestly, to myself, even it's somewhat of a surprise, I think. But, you know, when you think about, you know, uh, Thomas, who's, you know, a traditionalist and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a monarchist himself, is very in favor of kind of, you know, decentralized government, uh, which... You know, if you if you think about it, like that is um, at least in America, that's particularly a position that uh, libertarians tend to take in favor of more you know local government. Um, and I think that uh, not to say that libertarianism and traditionalism are the, identical. There's certainly uh, differences, and uh, but I think there are there's there is some common ground there where um, yeah I think we could actually work together a lot. In, in that respect. Although I would say there's kind of two uh, strands of libertarianism. There's one that's almost, uh, all, I don't, silly seems like not quite the right word, but it doesn't take itself very seriously, but there is a another strand, and I like to consider myself a part of it, uh, that is much more, much more serious, I think, um, in a sense of more more interested in uh, strong communities, and I think that there's a lot more common ground between that part of uh, libertarianism and you know Thomas's uh, traditionalism. Yeah, not the not the kind of uh, strain that thinks you know just less government will solve every problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Less government doesn't solve any problems. It, people people themselves have to end up solving problems. And you know, having strong communities is an excellent, excellent start to that. Exactly. Um, there is this um, neo-reactionary thinker. Now, I, technically, I belong to the neo-reactionary community, but I don't okay. like using the term reactionary to describe myself, because it's a, it's effectively a term communists created to describe my uh, my ideological ancestors, so to speak. You know the the reactionary, the traditionalists of the uh, uh, 19th century. So, you know, I prefer the term traditionalist, of course, but there's um, this guy in that community, in the new reactionary community, he's, uh, he goes by the name Mencius Mobug, and his real name is, um, is uh, Curtis Yavin. And he was, uh, he started out as a libertarian, and he effectively noticed something that, you know, you see, uh, I, I don't know who wrote this, I think Hope, wrote this as well, Hans Hermann Hope, I think, or somebody else. 
but effectively monarchy is the uh, how do I put this the, the literal definition of a privately owned government it's one individual owns the state and uh, you know it was a bit of a, a, a crazy revelation in a way when you put it in that uh, in these terms and I, you will find a lot of libertarians and sort of paleo libertarians being more um, sympathetic to monarchy in that way and I, I write about this in my uh, the relationship between liberty and tradition post but effectively the idea behind uh, this strain of libertarianism which is still a very tiny and very underground strain um, is that um, they understand that a moral foundation is necessary for liberty to thrive. So if there isn't a moral foundation, then liberty fails. If people aren't responsible with, their, with the way they use their liberty, then you end up in the current situation where uh, people are only free in, I don't know, having as many sexual partners as they like, but in every other aspect of life they're, they're taxed to death and they, um, they're unable to make free choices. They, and they're given I, I all these licenses and regulations. Yeah. And, you know, you have to safeguard your liberty and you have to use it responsibly and in ways that, uh, you know, benefits the overall uh, nurturing of liberty because liberty comes from specific moral foundations. And when you topple the foundation, you know, the whole thing crumbles down into a, a sort of, I don't know, serfdom of the most uh, base and animalistic desires that a human can have. And, you know, they understood yeah. that, these thinkers. And they also understood that monarchy is the, the perfect privately owned system. And they looked at the track record of monarchies as, um, as political systems and their relationship with local communities. And they said, you know what? We are neo-reactionaries. We are archaeofuturists. We are uh, paleo-libertarians. They use these, uh, these uh, terms because that's what we want. We want this system because as we see, uh, democracy only benefits big government, it only benefits progressive causes and progressive ideas, and it only benefits this sort of, uh, sur this serfdom in everything but name. And uh, to, to your previous point about me being, uh, possibly being a monarchist, I would like to say that uh, I'm not opposed to monarchy, but uh, I would not advocate for it in every circumstance. I think uh, you have to be a bit flexible with forms of government. And each uh, mm -hmm. sort of traditional community around the world had its own sort of forms of government. Even the monarchies differed in the way they uh, acted and in the sort of prerogatives that they had. So, you know, when we're talking about monarchy uh, as a generalized term or, you know, democracy or republicanism as generalized terms, I'm none of them. I want uh, very specific types of these things and I, I'm completely in favor with every community uh, practicing whatever they desire. If uh, mm -hmm. the United States and the United Kingdom agreed as communities to retain political liberalism, I'd have no problem with that because these countries are the sort of the birthplaces of that system. Well, my issue begins is that this was, uh, as I said before, this was forced upon the rest of the world. And it's still forced upon the rest of the world with things like the International Monetary Fund, with uh, you know the, the, for, the sort of conditional foreign aid that is coming out of the United States and the United Kingdom. You see this very clearly in Africa because Africa has never been liberal. Africa is still tribal and they have their little tribal kingdoms even to this day in some countries. I mean, there is a king of the Zulus. The Zulus in South Africa still have a king. 
he's effectively ceremonial now that there's a South African uh, parliamentary democracy in place. But they still have their king. They still have their ancestral traditions. They still have their villages and their communities. And it's this gigantic contrast between liberalism and whatever was going on in Africa before that point. And uh, I don't think the Africans should be forced to live under liberalism to get loans or to get any substantial aid. And I, I, I think this is a form of sort of modern day colonialism, it could be called. I hate using these terms because the left has kind of tainted these sorts of uh, talking points in a way. But they are right on some things. They are right uh, on, on some matters regarding what's going on in the, the third world. What's going on in Latin America, what's going on in Africa, what's going on in Asia right now. And uh, yeah, that's what I'd say, that you see this clear cultural crash uh, most evidently in Africa, because Africa never acclimated with liberalism. And you, you see all these uh, like constitutional monarchies like Morocco, or all these parliamentary democracies that are barely parliamentary democracies, that are effectively dictatorships and anything but name. And you see this contrast, and you also see it in Russia and China, because Russia and China, they pay lip service to democracy. They have elections, they have elected officials, they have campaign slogans, and they maintain sort of a, a facade of democracy because they have to. And a lot of the terrible actions that we see Putin making, or Xi Jinping, or whoever else in these countries, they make them to win elections. They make them to, you know, that's why they assassinate political opponents, that's why they put them in jail, that's why they do all these things. I would argue if these people, um, how do I put this, I mean, if these countries rather, because the, the people are pretty terrible, they're pretty corrupt, but if these countries decided that, you know what, we're going to restore the old Russian chardon, or we're going to bring back the celestial Chinese empire, you know, obviously these are very outlandish scenarios, but if they would decided those things, you'd see rulers that were much better in temperament, because they would understand their position is safe. They would know that there are laws which make their position legally the uh, sort of lawful position to be in and the righteous position to be in. And they wouldn't have any competition in any elections or any other silly fanfare. So they could actually benefit their communities. Now, some could say that down the line, maybe there will be a tyrant or an incompetent monarch. But in that same way, do we not have uh, incompetent politicians today? Uh, is, isn't everyone complaining all the time that our politicians are bought and sold by corporations today? I mean, we're sort of selectively ignoring the problems of the current political system, its failings, in order to maintain some sort of liberal propaganda from 200 years ago that democracies are better than everything else. Uh, that's what I'd have to say. What do you think? That's really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. What would you think about the, uh, like the Supreme Court justices? In the United States, how they're for life. Um, do you think that kind of makes them more valuable or more healthy? Or is it still, uh, you know, different? I like them. I like them. I, I wanted, uh, I like uh, systems which uh, are sort of conservative in nature. And having justices for life who are uh, able to see a sort of the cultural changes happening around them and act on them is a great thing. Uh, I read a book about, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's Aristotle's uh, The Constitution of the Athenians, and it also has another text that's uh, less well-known, that's more obscure, by a guy called Old Oligarch. 
and it's uh, on the Athenian state. They have a similar name and they both describe the state that the ancient Athenians lived in. And uh, there's this great point in Aristotle's account specifically, which uh, states that, you know, the, the last um, sort of conservative stronghold in ancient Athens that uh, maintained the interests of Athens as they had been formed over the many centuries before, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of populist demagoguery of, you know, the Democrats took over ancient Athens. Um, it was the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the highest, supreme, the highest court of the land. It was the Supreme Court of the Athenians. And I kind of see parallels here between the United States and the, uh, and the ancient Athens in this manner. I do think the court is probably the most conservative American institution merely because of the way it's, fun it's uh, structured. And I think it's a big failing that uh, there wasn't some sort of defined um, number of seats for the court, that it can actually be changed and that there are plans in motion, as I was reading, to add justices, which is uh, very clearly just court packing. I mean, what else could anybody call it? Anybody with honest intentions, right? So, right. Um, so yeah, I'd, uh, I'd say that um, the court uh, should function more, I'd argue, like uh, Islamic scholars in the Muslim world. That, that sounds pretty crazy to say usually, but uh, Islamic scholars effectively have specific schools of jurisprudence and these schools of jurisprudence are kind of like the American ones, you know, the, I don't know, the, what, what are they called, the textualists and the uh, whatever else. Um, yeah, the, the Islamic schools the, try to be... Textualists. Sorry, sorry, the textualists or the originalists uh, and then there's the, I guess you could say the progressives or the, um, I'm forgetting the word, there's a word. Um, yeah, I'm forgetting. Yeah, in, essentially. I would have said progressive, I don't know. Yeah, well, essentially the textualists judge based on what it says, but then the progressives tend to, uh, based on, sorry, based on what, like the constitution and, you know, whatever else they're judging from, whatever that says whatever the document says, whereas the progressives tend to, um, I mean, I don't want to say make up, <laughs> uh, basically make up their own rulings. I, I don't want to say that because it sounds, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds extreme, but it, it, it almost, it basically is that they basically make up rulings and then try, try to see how they can make the, the document fit, fit their ruling. Yeah, I'd make the argument that that's what they're doing because um, by the very fact that they're progressives and they're trying to, uh, the argument I often hear from these justices, you know, when I look at cases is, yeah, it might have meant that back then, but now the situation has changed. That argument means nothing. The idea that, right. oh, this thing changed now, it used to be this, but now it's that. You can make whatever that thing is now, supposedly, you can make them whatever you want with your own imagination. Mm -hmm. There has no, it has no basis in reality. So, you know, that's what I'd say. Uh, Islamic um, schools of jurisprudence try to be as literalist and conservative as they possibly can. Now, there are some schools that are considered more liberal, some schools that are considered more conservative, and there are like super traditionalist schools. But uh, I'd say that that's exactly how the court should work. It should be sort of textualist and originalist. It should... Um, function based on what is literally said in the text, what was written in 1776 or like 1781 or whatever. That's what it should base itself on and it should not change. Yeah. And 
uh, one thing I think, I think I mentioned, mentioned this book before, uh, it's called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, and, you know, one point that he, he makes several times is that a lot of times people say, and this book was written in the 1800s, but it's, people still kind of say the same things today, that, you know, something was, you know, true, true at the time, but not true now, and he's like, well, you know, if something, if something's truly true, then it, it wasn't just true at the, you know, whenever it was written, it is still true now, and, yeah. you know, I think that that's something that is really, it's really lost in the modern world, that there are, you know, there are things that are just, that are absolute, they don't, they don't change over time, you know, a period of time doesn't, doesn't change what something truly is. Yeah, um, if you if you give me um, you you segue you segue the conversation to a very great uh, point, I'd say. Um, a lot of the things we think are not true anymore and have changed are because we don't have the problem that our ancestors used to have with something, and when you remove the thing that prevents a problem from happening, you end up seeing that problem after a couple of generations. We removed all of these like public morality laws and whatever else in the name of, uh, you know, in the name of, uh, you know, that there were social tyranny of sorts and that individuals should be more free in their own affairs. And the people who removed these uh, sort of uh, modesty laws and these purity laws and whatever else, those people, you know, there were people with families, there were people who believed in like uh, some sense of uh, traditional morality, so to speak. And, you know, we're looking at that now, uh, like four generations uh, later, and J.K. Chesterton is great at making this point and making uh, many great points in his works. Uh, he's uh, one of the main uh, authors, I'd say, that people should read if they want to understand what it means to be traditional compared to modern and, you know, to see very good arguments for traditionalism. But effectively, now we look at the, one of the most uh, sexually degenerate uh, there's no word other that I can use to describe this. Societies ever. We have uh, like drag queen story hour, and I know it's sort of a stereotypical example. But, you know, we have that, we have some person dressed uh, in, in a, an extremely weird and provocative manner, you know, reading things to kids. And we have um, people in prison, you know, literal prisoners, dishonestly claiming that they're transgender so they can go to the opposite uh, gender prison to rape people, to rape the inmates there. And these people are granted the ability to say that. They're, they're, you know, we, we have to pretend to believe that they're genuine in their animal transgenderism, even though we know better. Because, you know, it's not progressive to deny somebody's real identity. And that's a, you know, the case I'm referencing is an actual case that happened in the United Kingdom. There was this uh, British rapist who uh, effectively said they were transitioning. They made little effort to transition. They went to female prisons. They raped inmates or sexually assaulted them. And after doing that in two or three prisons, they were finally sent to like a male prison. And they were kept in, a, I think, solitary confinement to... Um, prevent the other inmates from like, uh, you know, having contact with that person because they were sort of semi-transitioned. They, they, they effectively had kept their um, genitalia, so to speak, but they were uh, trying to present female. They were taking hormones and things. That's uh, what I remember. 
So you have this weird person and you can't speak out against them because of modern progressive nonsense when you know, in fact, that that person does this thing dishonestly. And you see this all the time with progressive uh, ideas. They're built on sand. They're built on sand so they are able to change uh, forever. And they're based on the lowest common denominator, which effectively makes them widely available to everyone, which is the point that progressives always make about things, that everything should be for everyone and that nothing can ever be exclusionary or exclusive. And um, all of these, um, and uh, they push for that. And what ends up happening is that nothing means anything anymore. Nothing has value. Women are just, I don't know, some entity. Men are some entity. Society is some entity and it can never prevent you from doing anything, but it totally exists somehow. And the only thing we're left with is uh, state legislation at the end of the day. The only thing regulating behavior after we tear down these norms, I, again, Denin makes that great point. I've never read a better book that's more relatable today than, uh, you know, uh, Patrick J. Denin's work. Um, is that, you know, what's, what's left at the end of the day after we demolish every social norm and we demolish every exclusionary category is for the state to take over and legislate morality and legislate uh, everything else. And, you know, when we say the state, we mean top-down imposition from the central authority. We don't mean communities, we don't mean regions where you would be able to move from region to region or from community to community, which is uh, exactly choice, which is choice. You choose when you do that. Um, top-down imposition, that's what we mean. I, I feel like I went on a complete tangent, but, you know, anyways. No, not at all. Yeah, I think this was, that was, actually, that was really good. And, you know, one thing that I haven't gotten to ask yet, uh, you've brought it up a lot, and I think this is actually an excellent time to ask it. You know, you know we've talked a lot about uh, a, common, you know, a common base in morality is really essential. Uh, you know, I have my own ideas about this, obviously, but where would you say that this, you know, this common morality should come from? How would we instate it? Uh, you know, what is the way, what is the road to get to there? Uh, I would say from my own sort of uh, perennialist viewpoint, and for those who don't know, uh, perennialism is a sort of a religious uh, theory about how uh, effectively when you dig down into religions, you find the uh, common things. You find many commonalities between the various religions in the world. And those commonalities suggest that there must be some sort of entity or thing that can uh, somehow be called a god. And that's how I, I'm, sort of a, I'm sort of theistic. That's how I define myself. I'm not exactly, uh, I'm not a specific denomination of religion, but I do believe in God. Um, effectively, the thing with perennialism is that when you dig down these religions, you find these common moral threads. For example, usury, you know, the, the idea of making money out of money, that was universally condemned. It was condemned by the, uh, the Hindus, it was condemned by the Muslims, it's condemned by the Christians. It's not just Abrahamic religions. So, you know, you look at all these other cultures and you see that, you know, it, it was frowned upon to make money by giving money to others. You know, if you were going to give a loan, you should have like a fixed rate that somebody should pay you back, you know that those were the agreements that were made back then, or the interest rate had to be like astronomically low. It couldn't be very, uh, it couldn't be extortionate, so to speak. And if you look at the uh, war, for example, every religion has a sort of a just war doctrine. 
the idea that war isn't just justified generally. War is justified under very specific circumstances, very specific situations. Um, if you look at all these things and you find that these religions sort of uh, maintain these common moral precepts with all these uh, similar points, and you have to really wonder, maybe there is some sort of universal morality in the sense that maybe there are certain moral principles that we used to all uh, have because you know all of these older societies existed in different times than we did and uh, they developed these systems independently of one another you know the, the systems that developed in england in 5000 bc would have no relation with things developed in china in 5000 bc and yet we find many commonalities so these commonalities must certainly have something to do with us being human with our human nature there's no other explanation really and um, when you look down to these commonalities, and when you look down at these religions and cultures, that's where the basis, that's where the foundation of morality would come from. Liberalism sort of artificially destroys these religious and cultural uh, mor moral um, commonalities and differences, because there are differences as well, of course. You know, liberalism destroys these if it, if it um, finds them uh, harmful to its end goal. So a lot of these have been sort of forgotten or they've been kept out of the public eye, which is the reason why you will still find effectively 50% of uh, Catholics in the United States, for example, thinking that abortion is okay, that there's no problem with abortion. Uh, you know, anybody who reads the text though, will realize that um, that's not the case, that the, the text itself is anti-abortion, that the church as a, tr a sort of traditional institution was against this uh, idea. And you, the Catholic Church has you look at, long been opposed to abortion. Hmm? I didn't hear that. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I was just saying that, yeah, the Catholic Church has you know, long been opposed to abortion. Always, yeah, yeah. really always has exactly. been and still currently is strongly opposed. Indeed. Um, so we, uh, we look at all these cultures and religions, we look at what they had as ideas and their presuppositions and the... Uh, the concepts that we're trying to promote and the behaviors that we're trying to promote. And that's exactly what should be brought back. And it should be brought back, it can only be brought back with the willingness of individuals to dig deep, find these ideas and revive them in their own communities with like-minded individuals. That's why I'm talking about a, a sort of, a, you know, from the ground up approach to things. And that's where I'd say the, the foundation would come from. It would come from culture, it would come from religion, and uh, these are the main primary sources. And, you know, we often talk about, uh, it's a different topic, we often talk about the word based on the internet, right? And nobody really knows what based mm -hmm. is. It's uh, like from, a, from sort of some sort of discussion about, uh, from uh, like a rapper mentioned it in an interview or something, and it's about, uh, you know, not being afraid to state your opinion, even if it goes against the norms. Right, but um, the idea of based is that it's grounded in something. That's what the word is. That's what the word is yep. based on. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> so you know, to be grounded on something, you have to have a, a value that you're grounded on. And you know, uh, Catholics ground themselves on the Bible and on the teachings of the Church. The Orthodox do the same thing with the Eastern Orthodox Church and the their Bible as well. The Muslims do it with their Quran. These are texts that have survived to us from effectively the Bronze Age or the Bronze Age or the Iron Age. They've come to us 
And yet, you know, the, the people that, uh, you know, believe in these texts, um, they, they, you, they can see that they have a different morality than the world around them. They can see that even if they try to conform to the world's morality or they try to conform more to the church's morality or they maintain a balance between the two, they see that there's a difference, a big difference. And that's where the basis would come from. These are sort of immortal words written by what these people believe to be their God, their deity, or the prophets of that God, the, the prophet of that God. Um, and these will be, I think, the basis for any sort of revival, cultural, religious, uh, political revival of any traditional norms. These are timeless texts, and even if translations are not good or they take away some things, the meaning on behind it still remains largely the same, like 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's uh, magnificent that we can, uh, you know, we've got these works that have survived through time because of their properties, because they've been so relatable to so many people that these people never abandon them. That's what I'd say. Yeah. A... And, you know, as a, as a Christian... Oh, go ahead, Matthew. Oh, it was kind of a weird question. I'll... What do you think about, um, is there, is there something fundamentally different about the modern kind of ideas, kind of progressive and liberal ideas that, um, can, do you think they will ever become traditional or in the future, these current ideas that are going around will be seen as traditional? Are they, you know, fundamentally different and will never be seen as uh, I think you will get uh, a lot of conservatives or people who call themselves conservatives anyways because I don't have a high opinion of these people obviously who will and this is often a meme in conservative uh, spaces and traditional spaces that you know you'll have conservatives in like 2050 championing transgenders so long as they're not like having sex with kids they'll be like oh you know sure you can be yeah. as transgender as you like we're all transgender here and you know uh, you know we're all transgender but you know you, you shouldn't cut off your arm and replace it with a robot arm you know that's just crazy now we shouldn't you shouldn't be sticking your penis in an eight-year-old kid you know sort of sort of for being visceral and all that but you know um that, that's what they'll be uh years. saying really, really gonna be like because, 20 uh, years yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it's it's gonna be in 2040. You know, just wait and you'll see. But um, yeah, yeah, you'll you'll see this happening, I'd say. But uh, the ideas of liberalism and progressivism are antithetical to any sort of tradition. Even the communists, in a way, have their own tradition, and in in their temperament, they resemble traditionalists, especially now that they've sort of been beaten, in a way. Uh, because here's the thing, communists based their ideas on the ideas of Marx. And Marx wrote his ideas in 1850, effectively, in the, the mid to late 19th century. So he was a man of his time. And because they have to conform to Marx's ideas, they adopt a lot of his uh, uh, worldview on things. And I'm not talking about these modern sort of progressive communist LARPers. I'm talking about people who genuinely consider themselves like Marxist Leninists and are serious about, you know, their Marxism, so to speak. And you know, I don't, I rarely have. We're not talking. We're not talking about Grimm. You're not serious enough. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's a, that's an inside joke. <laughs> no, Gr Grim does that very well. He did that in the chat. You know, he, yeah. you'd often no, find him cool. agreeing with me and uh, and John, you know, on things. And it really showed what I'm trying to demonstrate here that um, effectively the communists, because they based their worldview on things that were written before them, they have to sort of conform to the time of that uh, of that period. Now, the Bible is 2,000 years old. Marx is uh, 150 years old since, uh, you know, since his time. It's been 150 years. Um, or rather, 250 years. Wrong. My mistake. 250 years since his time. So, uh, or 200, rather. Um, anyway, so they have to base their ideas on those things. And anybody who bases their ideas on things from the past, written in the past, um, will we'll have a foundation of sorts. And this world liberalism also has a foundation in a way, back to thinkers like Locke and Hobbes and, you know, whatever else. Um, and uh, John Stuart Mill. Um, and you look at um, progressive movements and sort of modern liberalism, and you don't see any sort of rootedness in things. They, even their thinkers, they just kind of abandon them. You have uh, people who used to be um, very... Um, progressive and consider progressive icons, you know, they're progressive icons one day and they're cancelled the next day. And mm -hmm. this tendency of progressivism to effectively eat its own old people, and the old in terms of ideology, not so much in terms of age, but also in age in a way, the, this tendency for them to, you know, eat their own uh, just because they're not progressive anymore and to move always forwards, every day forward, that uh, tendency will never lend itself to a, an established tradition, to an established sort of written tradition. And because they can't do that, they're always moving forward towards a completely unknown goal that they'll never achieve, and they're always whine. They'll whine until they stop existing. That's uh, what I have to say about progressive, uh, uh, the idea of progressive establishing the tradition. Yeah. No, definitely, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of like, you know, linear versus circular. Yeah, versus cyclical, exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's something that, um, pardon me, I'm losing my, losing my train of thought a little bit. It's, um, it's all good. You know, it's happening to me too. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think, um, I think that uh, the, the progressives, a big issue with the progressives is that they're, like, like you were saying, they're, they're always going forward, but they're, they're not particularly interested even what you know what they're going forwards towards they just r almost randomly moving in in some random direction you know what was forward y yesterday might be backwards today um and so you end up in this just in, in you know random motion and it's not really there's no direction because there's it's not grounded anywhere uh, I, I would like to add and clarify uh, mostly for the audience here, that, you know, uh, progressives, and I think this needs to be stated more, honestly, uh, progressives aren't called progressives because they want to progress. That's uh, effectively what the, the sort of the current political status quo and system wants you to think. Because, you know, who would oppose progress? You know, you, you mm -hmm. have to be literally insane to say, I stand against progress. That's a, that's a silly stance. Mm -hmm. Progressives are called progressives because they believe there is progress because they think that there can be such a thing as political progress. 
There is no such thing as political progress. That's uh, what I have to teach to anyone who wants to listen to me. There is only political change, and that political change can be moral, it can be immoral, but it is never progressive or regressive. You're never going forwards or backwards with political changes. You're just moving somewhere to some end goal. And the end goal of progressivism is some sort of corporate nanny state. It's some sort of government working with uh, large corporations to provide you any consumer good you could want, to allow you to have sex with whoever you want, and to allow you to define your identity in whatever meaningless terms you want to define it. But, you know, them having all the power behind the, the curtain, them pulling all the strings in a supposedly democratic society, in a supposedly democratic government. That's the progressive yeah. end goal, even if the progressives don't see it and they are effectively being used as useful idiots. And ultimately nihilism, I think. Yeah, yeah, ultimately yeah. nihilism. Nothing, nothing matters. Yeah, and I, you know, I would basically agree with that. Uh, although it's a, there's a, I have a, a slight uh, nuance, I guess, to add. Uh, you know, I think you can be not progressive, but you can still be trying to move towards a certain. In a, in a, you could, you could politically progress if you have, in you know, some sort of um, grounding. So you know, for you know, for me as a as a Christian, I think that you could say, okay, you are progressing towards a more you know, you know, Christian community. So I think you could be sure. not a pro progressive, but you could still say there is, you can have, you know, socio-political progress, but you're still, you're still not a progressive. Yeah, as I, as I said, there is a political change and there is a sort of political change in a specific direction. If you see that direction as the good direction to head down, you know, you could say progress, although I personally avoid the word because it sort of conflates me with my enemies and I'm using the language of the people I consider my opponents, certainly not certainly. the people themselves. You know, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't consider any person my enemy. But you know, the ideology, effectively. Uh, so yeah, that's what I have to say. You know, you can think that you know this direction will be good for us. We should head down that direction, and any step towards that direction is good. Yeah. You guys here? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just muted my mic for a moment, but yeah. Uh, yeah it's okay. No, yeah, I, th I think that, I think I really do agree with you on there, and yeah, I think that progressivism just, <laughs> it's not, uh, it, you know, in the terms we define it, it's just, it's not good, and, you know, even less so than not being good, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, really. Um, yeah, do you, so I don't know, Matthew. Do you guys have any other questions, anything? Yeah, with the, that's what I was going to ask Matthew. I don't have any questions at the moment, but I don't know if Matthew has uh, some more questions left to ask, or if you if you have anything you you know you'd like to say in addition to what you have said, or any questions for us, of course, be happy to answer. I mean, I've uh, I've really said everything uh, I can think of right now. If you uh, give me any questions, maybe I'll get something uh, going, some thought that I have forgotten. But yeah, that's that's why I'm asking. Yeah, of course. Yeah, all that I can think of, I've asked. Yeah, certainly. Well then, yeah. Did uh, did you have any questions for us? Anything that you were interested in wanting to kind of probe into something we've said? 
I mean, sure, I'd, um, I would uh, like to inquire maybe about uh, sort of your general view of how society would operate under your sort of uh, uh, class, uh, your sort of, uh, I don't know, your utopia, your ideal like state of things. Oh, of course. Um, just to start off, you know, I don't particularly believe in a utopia. Um, yeah, I don't. At, I at least not on Earth. Well. I mean, I, I think it would be wonderful. And, uh, you know, I do think that, you know, in, the, in heaven, I think there would be a utopia. But <laughs> I don't think it's possible on Earth. And, you know, it's I'm too spoke, long. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a progressive um, idea in and of itself in a way you right know, because uh, that's what they're moving forward all the time even if they exactly. don't know what that is yeah and i mean it's a little bit of a long statement for why i don't believe it's um possible so i won't get into that but uh with that said you know i think it, you can yeah you can definitely get to a better place and so i think yeah in my in my perfect society i guess you'd have you would have the you'd have a lot of freedom um, on a, you know, on a, in a governmental level. So, you know, part of that would be a, a large decentralization of power. There would be, you know, smaller communities. And um, I think one thing that you'd be able to do is easily move from community to community. So if your community was really horrible for whatever reason, or you know, maybe it wasn't even horrible, it just was something you didn't prefer, you could go to a different one. Um, and then with that said, how would these, you know, kind of why would my ide ideal community within that function? Because I think that you could have different ones, but you know, I, I would prefer a certain kind of format. And I think that you would have, you know, on the governmental side, you'd have, you know, very low regulations. Uh, I'm, not an, I'm not an anarchist. I wouldn't support no regulations, but I think you'd have a very limited government and that, you know, the kind of the power vacuum that the, the government leaves behind would be filled by a community. And I think that, the only way that that's sustainable in any way is if you have extremely strong community, and I, I'm not entirely certain how feasible that is to, you know, support, but I think, um, yeah, basically just, you would have to have an extremely strong community, and you have to have people using those freedoms wisely, and you could have a small segment of the population abusing those freedoms, but you'd have to have the majority of the population be kind of you know wise and self-regulating i guess and yeah yeah that's kind of what i would say i don't matthew may have some different ideas though yeah i'd say almost the exact same you know with an emphasis and this is what i'm saying all the time now but you know people you know they can't delegate authority higher you know it's you know there would have to be watchdog basically Yeah, basically what you said. I mean, you have to have a, a constantly, you know, watching community. You know, you know, not expect other groups to uh, solve problems for you too much. Um, I'd say these were very good uh, answers, and we can uh, definitely discuss this for sure. Um, I'm called, uh, my account is uh, the Republic of Morality, uh, especially, you know, the important thing here is the first word, Republic. Now, it has a, a twin meaning in the way I, I imagine it, because republics are both the sort of a system of government, and there's also the other republics, 
which were these um, political treaties and like political uh, tracts written in like uh, 17th century Europe uh, that discussed, you know, well, politics. And uh, uh, I'd like to focus on the, the sort of the conventional definition of republics here. I used to be a sort of a classical republican, and I still am in some ways. Now, classical republicans has this very interesting idea that I'd like to put forth here, and I'll tell you how it connects to what you, uh, you just stated. Mm-hmm. Um, classical republicanism has the idea of non-domination. Uh, effectively, classical republicanism was developed in the Renaissance. Uh, it was a part of the sort of the religious humanism of the time, and it was trying to conceive a political state of affairs that was similar to uh, the Aristotelian ideal government, the, the polity or commonwealth, and or yeah, commonwealth. Uh, and uh, the sort of the, the Roman res publica. They were trying to conceive something similar to this system, something that would last like these systems, and would be a sort of a representative government, like the one that uh, was later created in the early United States, where you didn't have like a, a mass democracy. There was a sort of an elite class that were the politicians and the voters. But, you know, these people would guide policy for the good of all. And, you know, you could enter that class of... Uh, of people with, uh, you know, through some property and other qualifications. And effectively, these people had the idea of non-domination. The idea was that um, political power could not legally and lawfully dominate, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be, uh, it couldn't be exercised. And it's not just about political power, but it's also about community power and the, the power of the society. Because what liberalism tried to fight against, and this is the, the big issue, this is where uh, I diverge from liberalism and classical republicanism really laid it, I think, very well, is um, liberalism wants to separate itself from the supposed tyranny of the community and the tyranny of the society. Whereas classical republicanism said that the community could never uh, be outright dominant in your life. It couldn't dominate your life, but it could influence your life. It had a legal and moral prerogative to influence your life. And uh, as you said, you wanted strong and sort of responsible communities that can only be maintained through a sort of moral foundation that is taught at the community level. And Mm -hmm. this could only happen if the community was allowed to intervene in certain matters with the individual. When liberalism liberated us from these sort of obligations to the community and these sorts of uh, community interventions in people's lives because you know sometimes yeah there would be excesses there were sometimes where the community got too involved in somebody's business for example but um, you know using these excesses liberalism tore down the entire system was illegitimate and uh, again Patrick Denine lays it out um, I, I'm really shilling for that book I know but uh, it's a fantastic work it's very well written and it just highlights a lot of my thoughts in a way that's clearer than I could even like um, speak about them or think about them before I read it. So yeah, uh, what he outlines is that by liberating us from these communal uh, obligations and these communal, uh, this communal tyranny, as it called it, it brought us right into government tyranny and government oversight and sort of centralized uh, law enforcement in a way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of these modern ills that we see with the police, with uh, and it's a great example is the coronavirus, uh, sort of the mask mandates and everything else. In the United States, we didn't suffer 
the worst excesses of that. But here in Europe, where we had a very centralized government, I'm still not allowed to leave my house without a sort of government permit that says that, you know, the, the reason I have to leave the house, that it's for groceries or something else. Mm. I'm not allowed to step outside. If a police wow. officer stops me outside and tells me, hey, can I see your paper effectively? Can I see your like text message where you specify your reason? If I don't have that, I can be fined. And I'm fined like a half a salary in, uh, you know, in modern days money, pretty much. That's uh, this sort of thing, these excesses by the state and the police, this, this in, insane oversight and this, this state that led us into our modern sort of surveillance state where there are cameras everywhere monitoring our every move is only possible because communities don't exist, because they've been broken up and because they have no real power to compel the individual to do anything or to teach them yeah. anything. Yeah, and I think the, to bring a, a little meme that I thought was funny and it was like, um, you know, government asks you to wear a mask, you know, and you're happy to do it. And then, like, government tells you to wear a mask. Like, no, I won't do it. Um, and I think there's some of that. Like, people are, you know, to to a reasonable extent, people are, some people at least are happy to be responsible. But uh, then you get these, you know, excesses, like you were saying. Um, and that, you know, that kind of, it, it treats people like babies, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like as wrong as it is, it's a result of you know, I guess enough people not taking personal responsibility. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, freedom from personal responsibility, which demolishes every other freedom. Mhm. But it's interesting because you know, personal responsibility is something you can't really enforce. You can enforce behavior that comes from personal responsibility but in the end it's like how much you know it's interesting it's yeah. more something that has to be kind of encouraged cultivated over time cultivated yeah exactly uh, cultivated is the perfect word I'd say uh, educated maybe that's what I, I would have gone for before you said cultivated which sounds frankly ten times better yeah but yeah, I think that, um, you know, frankly, before, um, uh, just, uh, you know, as a personal note for myself, I was, uh, I actually did not even, before, before Thomas came on the show, I didn't even expect us to have, I don't think, as much common ground as we did. Um, but yeah, as we've discussed, um, I actually, I really like a lot of Thomas's ideas. And I think that um, there's really, a, I, I've learned a lot from it now, and I think there's a lot that can be learned from it. Um, Same here, yeah. I, I'm happy to hear it, guys. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm always open in the DMs. If you want to send, you know, we can talk through the group chat. You can send me individually. You know, it's all good. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, some of my best, um, and I was, uh, I didn't expect that either when I uh, started up the account. I thought that my main pushback in the account would be from sort of right-leaning libertarians in what I was saying. These guys are some of my biggest uh, supporters, I'd say, in what I say. Like I'll often get a lot of these people and, you know, I've, I've learned them on like a, a first name basis almost, a lot of these guys. I get them in my DMs and they're, they're talking to me about these topics and I found out that we have a lot of common ground. And when I came here, I was sure we'd find this common ground. And I'm glad to hear that, you know, you were sort of pleasantly surprised to find that out, you know. Yeah. Um, 
And of course, I think we mentioned it earlier, his account is called uh, Republic of Morality, republic.of.morality. Um, and of course, in the episode description, we'll have it there. So, you know, you can go find his account on Instagram. Um, I, I believe he mentioned he posts, maybe he didn't mention, but he posts kind of, I guess you'd say infographics, right? Uh, kind of pertaining to yeah. traditionalism. I don't yeah, know if you want to just say a word about it yourself. Uh, cr uh, critiques of uh, sort of modernity and uh, modern political, social, and economic thought. And uh, yeah, in, in sort of infographic form, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yep, and if you are, in case you're watching because you were uh, here from the Anacreon thing, uh, his, his style, we might have mentioned this before, his style is similar to Anacreon, so if you, if you enjoyed that, then you'll probably enjoy his... his uh, content. Yeah, I'd say this is this is a nice, smooth kind of sequel to our last episode. Glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so if, I don't know if anybody else has any uh, kind of comments they'd like to add before we before we wrap up. All right. Well. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Well, yet again, we so. We had Thomas on from Republic of Morality. Um, thanks for coming on. It was wonderful talking with you. I uh, really enjoyed it. And you know, for any of you listeners, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or confessions, email them to AmericanPhilosophers@gmail.com. And yeah, I guess a uh, couple weeks we'll see you in the next episode. Um, I'm sure if we um, if we have anything else to discuss at some point, you know, we could hop on again. I, I'd be glad to. Uh, but I think we covered the basics very well, and I, I don't really have anything else to say. So, you know, I'd just say, you know, cheers. 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 Yeah. yeah.